History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 512th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're hitting a location that is haunted in Vermont. There's not a lot in Vermont, but lately I've been hitting upon quite a few. And what's most interesting about this is not necessarily the location, but the spirit that's haunting the place. She was quite the character. I think our listeners are going to get a kick out of her. Excellent. Before we share the history and haunts of the old Stagecoach Inn, we want to welcome into the spectacular crew, Shania, Lou, and Laura. Thank you so much for joining our Facebook group. And now this moment, Noddity. Over the years, we've covered different funerary practices, some heartwarming and others that are a bit bizarre. One such practice that falls into the latter category was performed by a group of prehistoric people called the Magdalenians. This ancient society practiced cannibalism as part of their funerary rituals. The Magdalenian remains being studied lived between 11,000 to 17,000 years ago in northern and western Europe. There were 25 sites where funerary behaviors were identified, 13 of which had evidence of cannibalism. Researchers say that based on evidence found, it appears that the behavior was indeed funerary in nature, rather than supplemental to their diet, as could have been the case due to a harsh winter or something similar. The dead were clearly consumed and even the bones of the deceased were fashioned into usable items. Larger bones were found to have been broken open to access the marrow. Although evidence shows that the culture consumed large animals like deer and horses, the remains of the humans show careful preparation and even engraving on some of the bones found. From society to society, there can be a wide variety of funeral practices observed. However, consuming a deceased family member certainly is odd. And now, This Month in History. In the month of November, on the 3rd in 1914, the United States issued a patent for the first over-the-shoulder boulder holder. I beg your pardon. (laughs) Our female listeners probably look forward to getting home at the end of a long day and removing this article of clothing. However, during the early 19th century, the corset was the usual undergarment women still needed to wear. 19-year-old socialite Mary Phelps Jacob first created a bra to avoid wearing her corset. 
During the time, corsets were incredibly uncomfortable, not only due to the tightness hindering breathing, but the garment also limited the wearer's freedom of movement. Once the bra was created, most women just wore them around the house after removing their corsets. However, once World War I began the call for metal that was needed in the war effort, the metal previously used in the restricted corsets was pulled for the military needs. At that time, the bra really took off. Well, we still like to take them off after a long day, but just think about the corset alternative. Mary Jacob, who changed her name to Caress Crosby, never did gain a large profit from her creation. She sold the patent to the Warner Brothers Corset Company in Bridgeport, Connecticut for the current equivalent of $21,000. Stagecoach stops have a knack for being haunted. This isn't surprising due to the amount of activity that these locations experience throughout history. The stagecoach was the best form of transportation across land before the railroad stretched across America. The old stagecoach inn in Vermont served as a stagecoach stop as well as a tavern. Eventually, the building became a private residence and a former owner named Margaret Spencer might still be here in the afterlife. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the old stagecoach inn. Do you know why a stagecoach had that name? I do not. I never even thought about it. (laughs) And then I was looking up some stuff and I found the answer, which is because they traveled in stages of 10 to 15 miles. Oh, okay. Yeah, I never even occurred to me. Why do they call it a stagecoach? I get the coach part, but why is it a stage? Right. So you had to endure about 10 to 15 miles before you'd get to a stop and could, you know, stretch your legs and... On that hard buckboard. Unravel your brain. (laughs) Actually, you're not on the buckboard unless you're driving the team. (laughs) That's true. Well, some people might have ridden up there. That's true. The old stagecoach inn is located in the center of Waterbury Village in Vermont. In 1763, the land that would become Waterbury was granted by a charter from King George III through Governor Benning Wentworth of New Hampshire. This was the Winsuki River Valley, which had been home to the Mohican and Penacook people, tribes that were Algonquin-speaking. James Marsh was the first white settler in the area, but he was soon joined by other settlers who named the town after their original hometown of Waterbury, Connecticut. This was a strategic location for travelers going from Montpelier to Burlington or from the Mad River Valley to Stowe. Waterbury would be a perfect place for a stagecoach stop, and Waterbury's first lawyer, Dan Carpenter, set out to do just that. You know, build a stagecoach stop. Or it could have been a man named Mr. Allen. Or... Was it Mr. Parmalee? Tracking down who built this location is difficult. Not even the actual owners of the old stagecoach inn really know because as they were doing restoration and renovations, they would find paperwork in the walls that indicated different people might have built this. So they're not quite sure who exactly built the original building. A rabbit hole that really had no resolution. Nope. (laughs) Whoever the original owner was, It is clear from paperwork that construction was done by Horace and Henry Atkins, and it was completed in 1826. This ran as a tavern and inn that was quite plain and done in the federal style. 
The main street was turned into a toll road because of all the travel and was named the Winooski Toll Road. There was an anti-Masonic movement that started in 1826, and it formed America's first third political party, the Anti-Masonic Party. The catalyst for the movement was the disappearance of William Morgan, who had been a bricklayer. Morgan had belonged to the Masons and apparently had written a book revealing many of the organization's secrets. Members were sworn to secrecy, so this was a big no-no. No trace could be found of Morgan, and rumors started circulating that the Masons had murdered him. The Anti-Masonic Party put up their first presidential candidate, William Wirt, in 1831, and he managed to only win the state of Vermont. The party declined after that, but this win is an indication of how unwelcome Masons were in Vermont. So for them to have a meeting, they had to seek out back rooms in places like taverns. So the old stagecoach stop became their meeting location. This meeting called itself the King David Lodge. By 1848, stagecoaches were giving way to the railroad, which arrived through central Vermont that year. There were still people taking the stagecoach on north and southern routes, though. The railroad was a boom for Waterbury, which attracted people who needed a place to stop on their way to new hotels being built in the mountains at Stowe, Vermont. There was a stable barn in back that had been painted lead black for a time, possibly in mourning for President Lincoln. So it's kind of cool. I think it was on the official website for the old stagecoach inn. They were talking about how they saw some early pictures and they were like, wow, that's really weird. The barn in back was lead black. Why would you paint a barn like lead black? That right. wasn't normal. But when they looked at the date, they were like, I wonder if they did it because the president had died pretty close to that. And then they saw a picture that was just a few years after that. And the barn was not painted black anymore. Ah. So that's why they think it might possibly have just been because of mourning. But it makes you wonder how many other people painted their barns black and for the some time. Kind of tribute. Yeah. Interesting. In 1898, the electric trolley came to town, and that was the last nail in the coffin for the stagecoach. It was out of business after that. The trolley would run until 1932 when people started using automobiles mostly. A family named the Carpenters had owned the old stagecoach inn for a time, and they sold it to the Henry family, who were very prominent in Waterbury, and it came to be known as the Henry Farm. By 1890, the inn was mainly known as Miss Annette Henry's Home because she kept the inn as a residence. Annette had been born in Waterbury as Margaret Annette Henry in 1850. Most people called her Nettie. Her family was very wealthy, and she was described as high-spirited, and she was quite the character. She always wore her hair up in a bun, revealing her high cheekbones. She was very different than most women in town. Nettie loved to smoke cigarettes, which at the time was considered a sin in the town. She would often have her chauffeur take her for long rides so she could smoke in private. He claimed that she also seemed to like to chew tobacco, and he would often notice tobacco stains at the corners of her mouth. Later in life, she lost her hearing and would carry an ear horn so she could hear people. She also wore a dark celluloid eye shade in her elder years. She almost seems like a caricature of herself or something. It's just, you can imagine this woman who's just running around, smoking her cigarette. Her chauffeur must have had a great time. <laughs> Chewing her tobacco. I know. Spitting the juice. <laughs> it makes me think that she chewed the tobacco when she was somewhere that she couldn't really smoke cigarettes. Since right. Since it was so looked down upon at that time. But you gotta spit. You don't swallow that stuff. Uh, some people do. I don't know really? if she did or not, but I have heard that some people do end up just swallowing it. We have that antique spittoon. We do. Inherited down the generations of Hopefully my family. Hopefully it was never actually used. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> 
1903, Nettie married a rubber baron named Albert H. Spencer. The wealthy couple not only had the Waterbury Inn, but also a house in Newport, a suite at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City, and apartments in Paris and London. So you can imagine they were very well off. They decided to refresh the inn and update the look. The narrow profile of the federal style was kept, but Queen Anne Victorian elements were added like a gable above the roof line, clapboard sheathing, and a decorative chimney. The couple also added a third floor for an upper floor apartment, stained glass around the windows, a framed tapestry in the front hall, and wood paneling throughout. The couple meant to keep the house as a private residence, but they were rarely there and eventually it reverted back to a hotel. In 1907, Albert Spencer died in London and rumors started swirling about Nettie Spencer's life. People claimed that she and Albert had been having an affair before they married and a child was born out of wedlock. When Nettie returned to Waterbury, the local women snubbed her a bit, perhaps being jealous over her having become a part of international high society. Some stories claim she was active in bootlegging when Prohibition started, which I can imagine if she was smoking and chewing tobacco when she wasn't (laughs) supposed to, I could see her running alcohol when she wasn't supposed to either. One might think that Nettie caused some of her own troubles as well by flaunting her automobiles around town. One was a Lincoln Phaeton, which is an extraordinarily cool-looking car. If you aren't familiar, it looks a lot like Cruella DeVille's vehicle. And she made sure it got noticed because she regularly told her driver to step on it. Kind of like how you tell me to punch at Margaret all the time. And guess what, (laughs) Kelly? What is her real first name? Margaret. (laughs) Isn't that weird? It is weird. Synchronicity. My grandpa used to say that to my grandma, whose name was Margaret. Yeah. But I just thought, wow, (laughs) Kelly's always telling me to punch at Margaret. Well, because you'll merge into traffic and you're going too slow. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, did I say that out loud? Yes, you did. Oh, Oh, the little windows into our lives. (laughs) (laughs) If he responded that it wasn't safe for them to drive so fast, she would retort, I'm paying you to drive the way I want. I don't pay you, but I still want you to drive the way I want. (laughs) And she always made sure that he stopped before they got too close to the railroad overpass when a train was coming through. Because she didn't want to, quote, get any of that shit on the car, referring to the smoke and cinders. (laughs) I mean, she was a character for her time. It just amazes me. Nettie was domineering and tight with her money. Let's just call her thrifty. Like you, Kelly. (laughs) Indeed. But she also could be generous as long as people followed her directions to put the money in the bank immediately. A woman who had been a little girl in the 1930s remembered calling on Mrs. Spencer to see if she would buy bags of candy to fund a club she belonged to, and Mrs. Spencer had invited her in to sit in a gold chair. Apparently, Nettie often invited the young girls in town to sit in her gold chair that many were led to believe was solid gold. They all commented that it was like sitting on a throne. Yeah, so I don't know what this chair exactly was made from, but the little girls certainly thought it was some kind of a throne. And they would come as a whole group for their club to do this fundraising. And I think it was like five cents a bag for candy. And she would always buy two. So she'd give the girls 10 cents and then she'd make them stand out on the porch and they could come in one at a time. (laughs) So I thought it was kind of cute, though. She was letting the girls feel like a princess for a moment or something. In November 1927, the Great Flood of Vermont occurred and hit Waterbury fairly hard. Three days of rain caused the Winooski River to flood. And it was so powerful that it carried away barns, bridges, livestock, houses, and even railroad tracks. Oh, my goodness. 
Waterbury had a floodplain which helped, but houses in lower-lying areas were carried off, and debris piling up on one end of Main Street caused much of the property there to flood. At the old Stagecoach Inn, waters rose to the second level, but the house survived and was repaired. It took months for the rest of the town to recover and for bridges to be rebuilt. By the end of World War II, Nettie was approaching 100 years of age, and her mind was starting to go. She needed constant supervision. A night nurse who took care of Mrs. Spencer said she had two favorite pastimes, singing hymns and smoking. And, you know, they say smoking kills, but she lived to be almost 100 years old. And they probably didn't have filters. I don't know. I'm sure not. We would share a hymnal, rock and sing with gusto for 10 or 15 minutes. She would then have a cigarette or two and we would start all over again. She would smoke her cigarette down to the very tip and then flick it as far as she could. It delighted her to see me scamper after it. It was an old house and I was afraid of fire. I would rush and pick up the butts and place them in a saucer. She, however, thought I was collecting them to take home to my husband and accused me of it nightly. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm sure she's picking up those little whatever was left of the cigarettes (laughs) so her husband could smoke them. Eventually, the need for constant care led to Nettie moving to a nursing facility in Massachusetts. She died there in 1947 and was brought back to Waterbury, where she was interred in the Spencer Mausoleum at Hope Cemetery. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. Nettie's former home had undergone many changes through the years, not only to the architectural styling, but also to the grounds. Much of the land that the former farm had sat upon had been sold. C.B. Norton bought the property in 1948 and used it for two businesses. He ran his office for agricultural implements out of the house, and then he and his wife rented out rooms, some of which they had converted into apartments with their own kitchens and bathrooms. Mr. Norton died in 1972, and the place basically became a rundown boarding house with many of the clientele being mentally ill people who were getting out treatment from the nearby asylum. This was the Vermont State Asylum for the Insane and was also known as the Waterbury Asylum. It was built in 1890 by several architects in three styles, late Victorian, colonial revival, and classical revival. This facility was built to alleviate overcrowding at the Vermont Asylum for the Insane in Brattleboro, Vermont. Waterbury Asylum was originally intended to house the criminally insane, but through the years started allowing people with addictions and other mental illness to be admitted. One of the longest-running superintendents was Dr. Eugene A. Stanley, who was a big proponent of eugenics, and he supported forced sterilization. He actually wrote lots of research papers and sent them out to other asylums about the benefits of that, which makes me think that he was conducting that here at the asylum. Probably. Also, the term Waterbury was used as a derogatory term for years to indicate that someone was acting insane. So, you know, you'd say, hey, if you don't stop doing that, they're going to haul you off to Waterbury. The hospital closed in 2011. It's really cool looking structure, though, for sure. And I think today now it's run as some offices for something. Mrs. Norton tried to do her best after her husband passed to keep the boarding house going, and she eventually was forced to sell what little land was left on the property. Mrs. Norton passed away in the early 1980s, and the once grand home was a wreck, leaving the town wondering what to do with the property. 
They knew they didn't want to demolish it because of its historical value, but finding someone who not only had the money to refurbish, but also wanted to refurbish, wasn't easy. That's when Bostonians Kimberly and James Marcotte found out about the property. Kim had grown up in Waterbury and was very familiar with the location. They decided to renovate the building into a country inn and take it back to its former glory. Jim was well-suited for the job as he was a contractor that specialized in restoring old houses. Kim was a decorator, which was a plus. The couple partnered with the Historical Society and got a small business loan and set about to restore the place in 1985. They gutted the first floor room and transformed it into a library and bar. The stable barn and back house were transformed into five efficiency suites for long-term stays. A commercial kitchen was added and original hand-hewn beams were exposed. Period antiques were added along with crafted knickknacks. It took two years to complete and opened for business in 1987. There was a lot of hope for success here, but the recession in the 80s and a need for the Marcots to split their time between the inn and their business interests in Boston caused the couple to shutter the business in 1992. I can't imagine putting all that effort in and it didn't last that long. Yeah, that's too bad. The inn stood empty for over a year. Another ray of hope came in the form of a father and son, John Barwick and John Barwick Jr., They both were businessmen in New York City looking for a more relaxed way of life. When they approached the Small Business Administration to say they wanted to take over the inn, they were met with skepticism. They had no experience as innkeepers. The SBA finally agreed and the sale was closed on September 2, 1993, and the old Stagecoach Inn opened for business again on September 25, 1993. So in less than a month, they turned that place around. Wow. And they said during this time, they had to pack up both of their homes. They shut down the family business. They packed up both their homes and got everything moved up there. They had to, you know, do some redecorating, renovations, things like that. Cleaning, I'm sure. Yeah, it had been sitting (laughs) empty for a while. So they did that all in less than a month. They had filled the place with antiques that they had collected over 50 years. And they opened at prime time foliage season. Perfect timing. Yeah. And they didn't know what foliage season was because they're from New York City and they don't know anything about people actually, you know, tour to places so they can see the leaves turn. So they were shocked with how many people all of a sudden wanted to book rooms there. That first month was a booming success. The inn runs primarily as a bed and breakfast and all the reviews we've read about it rave about the gourmet breakfast service and the room. So this sounds like a great place to stay. It's got the bar inside. They have all kinds of great pictures on the website or, you know, people just sitting at the bar chatting in the dining room and looks like a really neat property. And you can, there's skiing that's nearby and the little downtown area has a lot of great places to eat. It looks like a great place to stay. The Barwicks were able to buy back the original expansive land in the rear of the property, adding to the beauty of the property. This is the perfect place for hosting private luncheons, parties, and weddings. And this is a location that isn't shy about their haunting. They proudly talk about it on their website, and they provide journals to guests to write down their experiences. John Barwick wasn't much of a believer when he bought the place, but he is less skeptical now. Yeah, I would think he'd refer to himself as an open-minded skeptic like us. Uh, There's been experiences, but I'm not quite sure I know exactly what it is. Well, there are claims that a rocking chair will rock on its own, sometimes in what appears to be an agitated manner. Furniture moves on its own. Housekeepers claim to get help from someone unseen who strips the beds and neatly folds the sheets. That spirit can come help at our house anytime because 
folding fitted sheets is the bane of my existence. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if it folds the sheets after it strips the bed. So I'm like, why are you folding the dirty sheets? Because they're just going to go into the wash. But oh, well, I'm not sure exactly how that works. But yeah, if they're going to fold, especially the fitted sheets, I kind of have a knack for doing that. But it's taken <laughs> you me do. a long time to learn. <laughs> you do. My sister-in-law does too, but... <laughs> Despite the help, some of the cleaning staff is reluctant to work alone upstairs. A paranormal investigator and psychic walked through the inn and said that there seemed to be a strong energy field in the building. Using dowsing rods, he found the strongest sensations came from rooms 2 and 8. Interestingly, most of the ghost stories center on room 2, which had been Nettie's room. The Old Stagecoach Inn website shares the following story. It was a busy summer weekend and all rooms had been booked although the reservation for room three had been canceled unexpectedly the previous evening. Mr. Barwick had taken the cancellation himself, and he alone knew about it. Here it was, Sunday morning breakfast was being served, and the dining room was still mostly full. Mr. Barwick was helping the waitress by keeping the coffee urn and orange juice pitcher full and by removing dishes. As he was standing at the dining room entrance, two people came down for breakfast. They were unfamiliar to him. He had registered all the other guests and chatted with many of them, so he had a pretty good idea who was staying there. He thought perhaps this couple had come in off the street looking for breakfast, which occasionally happens. But it was odd that they had come down the stairs instead of through the side door. To make sure, he asked if they were guests of the inn. Yes, they replied. We're all in room three. How many of you are there? Mr. Barwick asked. Three, they answered. Three, said Mr. Barwick. That room accommodates only two. Where did you all sleep? Oh, we managed, they replied. We couldn't find a place to stay. This was the only one. Still puzzled, Mr. Barwick asked, Well, what time did you come in? Oh, they said it was around 2.30 this morning. Well, who let you in, asked Mr. Barwick. Why, it was a lady, an, an older lady. Very nice. More puzzled than ever, thinking it might have been one of the other guests who had been unaccountably awake at that hour, he now asked, Well, what did she look like? Gray hair, kind of in a bun, and wearing a long dress, they replied. That didn't match any of the other guests. But even if she had been a registered guest, it would have been highly unusual for someone to have unlocked the door and allowed three people to come in for the night. And how could she have known that the room was available? After the newcomers had been seated and their orders taken, Mr. Barwick queried the other guests as they left the dining room to see if anyone had any knowledge of the incident. No one did. He thought for a long time about this. There was probably a logical explanation, but he couldn't think of it then. And still can't think of one now. Yeah, I can think of a logical explanation. <laughs> As can I. I would say Nettie answered the door and said, oh, we do have one room available. So clearly she's okay with this place running as a bed and breakfast. Clearly. UM1997 wrote on TripAdvisor, So we head back to the inn and get ready for bed. It had been a long day of walking around and sightseeing, so we were all beat. So everyone fell sound asleep. Around midnight, I woke up because I just had a strange feeling that something was in the room with us. I sat up and looked around the room and didn't see anything. But you know when you just get that creepy feeling and all the hairs stand up on the back of your neck? Yeah, that's what I felt. There were also some really old pictures on the bureau that didn't help my feeling of uneasiness. I figured that I just had a bad dream that woke me up, and since my parents were still sound asleep, I tried to push it out of my head and go back to sleep. I think I stayed awake for a few hours after that, still looking around for something to pop out at me. As we mentioned earlier, the inn keeps a journal of guest personal experiences. I tried to see if I could find anywhere that they might have posted some of them. 
and I wasn't able to find anywhere I could actually see the writing and read what was written, but there was a picture that was from this journal, and we've got it in the show notes. I'll put it up on Instagram as well. Kelly, this looks pretty believable. It's a woman in a dress. She's got her arm up as if she's either bracing herself, looking out of a window, or waving out of the window. I'm not sure exactly what she's doing there, but the way her hair is styled, it looks like she does have a bun, but it's not like on the top of her head. It's in the back of her head, like closer right, a to low her bun. neck. Yeah. It's pretty convincing. I don't know. You know, we if we don't take the picture, it's hard to judge it. But yeah, it definitely has the form of a woman in a dress. And yes, her arm is up and you can clearly see the way her hair is styled. So we'll put it up and see what you guys think. We imagine a character like Nettie Henry Spencer would be hard to tamp down even after death. She seems like a prime candidate to be a mischievous ghost. And this inn was a part of her life for many years. One would think she would want to be around now that the place has such new life within it. Is the old stagecoach inn haunted? That That is for for you to decide. decide. Now, one of the key things that I would have thought would be part of the experiences that people have here, because we always have these nose pictures, and when it comes to an older woman, it's usually old lady perfume. But in Nettie's case, you would think you would get... Cigarette smoke. (laughs) Yes, or some kind of tobacco smell. But... I didn't see anything like that that's out in the official record online. Now, maybe in the journal that people have shared at the bed and breakfast, they have stories of people catching the scent of cigarette smoke, because that would be pretty key to indicate that she's the one haunting the place, because clearly this place has got to be non-smoking, I would assume. Most bed and breakfasts are. Right. So that would be interesting to know. But it looks like a gorgeous, we'll put up pictures on Instagram as well. It is a gorgeous bed and breakfast. They've done a spectacular job with it. The whole back area has been converted, you know, and everything. So it looks like it's a really huge house and with the back end and stuff. And I looked to see if that asylum had any ghosts going on there. And I couldn't find anything specifically about that one. There's another asylum in Vermont that seems to have most of the activity there. I can't believe this one didn't because it sounds like a lot of nefarious stuff was going on there. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you'd like to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Or you can comment on any of our social media, just like Christina did on the Quincy episode. She said that she lived right down the street, and so it was exciting to hear about an area that was near to her. And we had covered Hannibal, Missouri for an episode, which had been suggested by her. Yeah, and it's one of these episodes that I'm like, oh, it's not going to be as exciting for people because they're going to be like, Quincy, Illinois? I mean, what's going (laughs) on there? Where's (laughs) that? So I love it when we get comments on some of the more obscure things like that. And while I was doing the research on Quincy, I found a story that is our phantasmal crime that has dropped this week. It was also in Quincy. And then also in the Spooktacular Crew, we had Callie sharing this. I'm sorry for the kind of lengthy post, but I wanted to share our recent experience. Please bear with me as it proves we get little signs. About six weeks ago, my husband's work suggested he go to the ER because he was getting an aura in his left eye that had lasted for a while. And I think that's how you say it, A-U-R-A. He called me while I was working, and I met him at our little town hospital. Our ER took a CAT scan and happened to find a cyst in his brain at the base of his skull. We were sent to a bigger hospital about an hour south of us for a neurologist to look at it and an MRI. The hospital we went to was bigger with more technology and told us that this spot isn't something they usually worry about, but he was going to be admitted so they could do an MRI. 
At this point, understandably, not only my husband and I, but my in-laws are pretty much freaked out thinking about all the different outcomes. My husband has his MRI the next morning, and while we are waiting on the results, our day nurse comes into the room and starts talking to my husband about her tattoos. Turns out the one she's the most upset about is having to change her daughter's name from her legal name to Marty. I froze when I heard this. My great-grandmother's name was Marty. Backstory to why I found this relevant. When I was in my senior year of high school, I was kicked in the head by one of our horses, and I don't tell many people, but at that time, I died. I was greeted by my favorite cat, favorite horse, dogs, and my great-grandmother, Marty. I was told I have a greater purpose and couldn't stay and was sent back. Flash forward, a little time has passed since finding my husband's cyst, and every time I think about what we have coming our way, I'd always hear everything's going to be all right in the back of my mind and get a sense of calm. The week before my husband's surgery, I was upset and driving home and saying, I just need a sign everything's going to be fine. I looked to my left and saw a small rainbow in the clouds. Upon seeing this, I got a very strong feeling that this was a sign everything was going to be fine. The next day before I left for his surgery, I had a total breakdown to one of my friends at work about everything that we've been going through to get to the surgery. And she told me there's always a storm before the rainbow. Hmm. My husband has his surgery. Everything goes as routine as possible. And the surgeon says the cyst is benign. A huge wave of relief comes over me and I start thinking back to my little signs. We get up to his room, which is 6502. The last four digits of my old phone number were 6502. Goodness. I thank God and my guardian angel, who I'm pretty sure is my grandma Marty, for these little signs every day. Well, that's a very cool story. Yeah, an excellent outcome. We're glad that the cyst was taken care of and that it was benign. And then Gina had written in the crew, this is really, really strange. I'd like to know what you think. Tonight, while I was driving on a local highway going around 75, I all of a sudden heard a faint bang bang on the side of my car. Then I hear it again, this time louder. I then hear a bang bang bang, this time on the roof of my car. At this point, I have this feeling of terror and panic wash over me. My mind is trying to figure this sound out, and to my ears, the sound is like as if someone was banging with an open hand. And the thought of someone on my car came to mind, but that was impossible at the speed I was going. I then hear another bang bang, which now sounds like it's on my windshield. Well, the next and last bang bang I hear came from the top of my dash inside my car. Yes, inside the car. After that, I didn't hear the sound again, not once. But I tell you, I was terrified. When I got to where I was going, I searched my entire car. There was no sign that anything hit my car. No sign of anything unusual. Could this have been some kind of paranormal activity? I will be thinking about this for a while. Thanks for letting me share. I just wonder if somebody was trying to get her to slow down. I think Shelly had suggested that in the comments that she had said, somebody was telling you to slow down. Yeah. Since she checked the whole outside of the car, my first thought was maybe this is a piece of debris that has connected to the car, a branch or something, and she's hearing it bang and it's moving around. Although when she got to the part where she's talking about the windshield, you'd probably see whatever was banging. And then inside the car, I was really perplexed because I'm like, okay, I don't know how that happened. Bill had suggested that it was something called, I think it was oil canning. And he said it's like when the car is cold and it's warming up and something about the metal and it makes like a banging and popping noises sometimes in different places. Yeah, perhaps. But then also windshield dashboard made me go, no, I don't think it's something that would be like part of the body of the car like that. Right. Gina's going to check in to see if there's any stories about that road. Because I'm like, well, maybe, you know, it's like 
the dead zone on I-4. And right. And some spirits maybe right in that part and they were having fun playing on her car. I don't know. Yeah, could be. But yeah, very weird. I've never heard a story like that where you're actually driving other than like when somebody's driving and they see the dog man and sure. then he like hits the side of the car or whatever. And that's why he's so weird because it's like, how can anything run that fast? Right. And I said, well, clearly it wasn't some kind of cryptid because she eventually would have seen it. And again, the dashboard is the thing that throws me because I'm like, when you hear something with the dashboard yeah, exactly. and it's like the inside interior. the car, mm-hmm. be interesting to see what other people might think about that as well. We want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. Bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to thank Chris Key for raising sponsorship. We are going to be moving you under a marble tombstone. Thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump. Check out the website at historygoesbump.com. She sold the patent to the Warner Brothers Corset Company in Bridgeport, Connecticut for the current equivalent of $21,000. And we have been cursed by the bra ever since. (laughs) I know. I can't wait to take mine off when I get home. (laughs) It was cute. Last night we finally watched Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. And it gets to the part where she has to go get a training bra or she wants to get one (laughs) to be part of this group. And her mom's like, do you really want to start that already? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs)